Well, it's good to be with you. Um, I've preached here about a year and a half, two years ago, and I always really love being here with you, so thanks for inviting me back. It's a real treat. Um, today we are going to be looking at the story of Tamar, which, as was mentioned, odd little story, um, found in, in Genesis 38. So this is right in the middle of the long narrative of Joseph, uh, right before he's, or right after he's sold into slavery, before he uh, is faithful in obedience to God in Egypt. There's just this funny little intermission, actually, about his older brother, Judah, Joseph's older brother, and a woman named Tamar. So let me pray, and then I'll read our scripture for today. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as your scripture is read and your word is proclaimed, we might receive with joy what you have to say to us today. Amen. So this is Genesis 38. I'm going to read just some parts of of the story. Um, I'm going to read verses 11 through 19 and then 24 through 30. But then we're going to talk through the whole story in the sermon. So this is God's word. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he might die too, like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. Tamar said, Your father-in-law is... Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to, sh- to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. She went over, he went over to her and said, Come, let me sleep with you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me for sleeping with me? I will send you a young goat from my flock, he replied. But she said, Only if you leave something with me until you send it. What shall I give you, he asked. She answered, Your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. She got up and left, then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a prostitute, and now she's pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I'm pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, Examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her intimately again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing, This one came out first. But then he pulled his hand back. Out came his brother, and she said, What a breakout you've made for yourself. So he was named Perez. 
Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out and was named Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Ready? <laughs> uh, so we'll start light. I was married on April 9th, 2020. April 9th, 2020. Does that date make you shudder just a little bit? Those were dark times. It was about two weeks into the pandemic, and my husband, Will, and I realized that we would need to cancel the big wedding that we had planned for the end of May. He was, he's a nurse, and he was working with COVID patients, and at the time, we had no idea what that would mean. And so we went ahead and got married on the first day off that he had um, in a field on the side of the road with just our pastor and two other people in attendance. Don't feel too sorry for us. It was a really beautiful day, and lots of people got to join by Zoom. But when I think back to that day, one thing that really stands out to me is that besides Will, I didn't hug anyone on my wedding day. You know, from where we're standing now, it it almost seems hard to remember those days, doesn't it? When we had gone for so long without being physically present with anyone else, when everything became virtual, when we'd zoom into business meetings and family gatherings and weddings and funerals. We didn't touch each other. We didn't smell each other. We didn't get up close with anyone, close enough to notice their wrinkled pants or their gray hairs or their tears. Our lives happened behind a computer screen behind plexiglass barriers. And because we're living in a society that at baseline is is fairly disconnected from our physical bodies and and we're only becoming more and more disembodied, I think that sometimes it's easy for us to believe that God relates to us in that way, that he sits behind some plexiglass barrier in the sky and up there in heaven he's untouched by the muck and the mire of life down here on earth. But Tamar's story shows us something very different, doesn't it? She just shows up in this one chapter, and in many ways, her story seems like a digression from the main event, from the big history of the people of Israel. But it's not a digression at all. Tamar's story is not gonna be found in children's Bibles, for obvious reasons. or on the front of a Christian greeting card, also for obvious reasons, (laughs) but God came down to her. He saw her, and he came right into the middle of the mess and the mire of her story. And through her, the Son of God comes into the midst of our story. Tamar's story reminds us that God delights to use the most surprising and sometimes the most broken people to accomplish his purposes of restoration in the world. God works redemption and restoration in the most unexpected ways through the most unexpected people. And so we're going to walk through her story and we're going to, as we do, we're going to pay attention to three things. We're going to look at Tamar's surprising vulnerability, Tamar's surprising courage, And finally, God's surprising redemption through her story. So first, let's take a look at Tamar's surprising 
vulnerability. So I want to give you some background. We kind of dove into the middle of her story. But earlier, Genesis 38 tells us that Judah, who again is Joseph's older brother, he had left his brothers and their land, and he'd gone off to hang out with the Canaanites. And there he'd gotten married to a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and they had three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. So Tamar, who's also a Canaanite woman, is given in marriage to the oldest son, Er. Right off the bat, we see the first hint of Tamar's vulnerability. She's a Canaanite. So to the Hebrew ears of the original audience of this text, the Canaanites, they were the enemies. They were the people whom God had not chosen, the people who were meant to be driven out of the land, the threat, the impure ones. And to the original audience, including to Judah himself, Tamar was a racial outsider. Not only that, but the text also tells us that her first husband, Er, the oldest son, was so wicked in the sight of the Lord that God put him to death, leaving Tamar a widow. Now, in an agricultural society like the one in which they lived, land was money. Without land, you couldn't grow crops, you couldn't have livestock, so you couldn't feed yourself or your family. That also meant that you didn't have anything with which to trade for other goods that you might need. And so land was essential to livelihood, to life. But women were not able to own land at that time, so the only way a woman could provide for herself was through her connection to a man, because that's how she was connected to the land. So that would be either her father or her husband. So that's what made widows like Tamar so very vulnerable. That's why we hear so much in scripture about caring for widows. Because of the structures of society, widows were the most vulnerable people in the entire community. So when her husband died, Tamar lost her rights to her husband's land, to her husband's inheritance, and she had no means by which to work to provide a living for herself. So at such a young age, we think she was probably married when she was a young teenager, Tamar, she's already not only a racial outsider, not only traumatized by being married to a man so vile that God had put him to death, but she's also now a social outsider, marginalized within her own society. So that's why Judah instructed his second son, Onan, to marry Tamar. Now, this whole business of wives being given to the brother of a dead husband is very strange to us. Let's just admit that. Um, it might even seem unjust or offensive to you, and that's okay. I, I think for, this, for the purpose of this story, I just want to ask us to take off our 21st century American glasses and try to look at this situation through Tamar's perspective. Because this tradition, it's called leveret marriage, it was actually something that functioned within this kind of patriarchal agricultural society to protect vulnerable widows. So here's how it worked. Tamar would be given in marriage to her dead husband's brother so that she could have children through him. Those children would then inherit the land that was meant for her dead husband 
So her dead husband's portion of land would then go to her children. And so in a society in which women only had value through their connection to a man, Leverett marriage was a way to reconnect them to the family, to, to a man and their husband's family, and therefore reconnect them to land and provide them with life. It was her way to survive. So we actually even see a little bit later down the road this practice showing up in Deuteronomy as part of Mosaic law, God commanding people to care for widows in this way. So even though it seems odd to us, this is something that Tamar sees as her right, her way to survive, and she fights for it. But Onan knew that if Tamar had children, that would mean less land for him and for his children. So if the land is a pie and Tamar's children got some of it, he and his children would get less. So he was selfish, and he refused to have children with her. He disobeyed his father, and he denied his duty to Tamar. So Tamar, she had no recourse on her own. She was left helpless then by the person who was duty-bound to protect her. And Onan's so selfish refusal to take care of Tamar was seen as so wicked in the eyes of God that, again, God put him to death. So first the oldest son and then the second son were so wicked that God put them to death. What Judah does next only compounds Tamar's vulnerability. So there's one more son, one more son of Judah, Shelah. But he's not yet old enough to be married. And so instead of Judah taking Tamar into his own home to provide for her while, Ta- while Shelah grew up until he was old enough to be married, he sent Tamar back to her father's home, which was apparently pretty far away. So Judah had actually no intention of giving Shelah in marriage to Tamar. The text says that Judah did this because he, he sent Tamar away because he thought that if Shelah married Tamar, Shelah would also die like his two older brothers. He thinks, well, Tamar married one, he died, married another one, he died, must be Tamar, she must be the problem. So instead of considering the wickedness of his own sons, Judah blames Tamar for the situation. He sends Tamar back to her father's house, hoping that everyone would forget about her, out of sight, out of mind, my hands are clean. So Tamar is in this unbelievably vulnerable position. She's a young woman who, in her short life, has borne incredible trauma. She was married as a young teenager to a man who was so vile that God put him to death. Then she became a widow. She lost the security that would have been offered to her through marriage. As a woman, she had no agency, no ability to inherit land, no ability to work for her own survival. She had absolutely no social standing, no protection at all. She had nowhere to turn. So she's a cast, and then finally she's cast off by the one person, Judah, who could protect her. He doesn't. This man who is supposed to protect her repeatedly refuses to do so. So Tamar's vulnerability, you can, you can feel it building. It just builds and builds like a snowball throughout this story because of the wickedness and the injustice of those people who are supposed to be protecting her. 
So she's been utterly trampled under the hooves of a society that is just not built for her. I wonder who the Tamars in our society today are. Who are the people who experience this kind of hopelessness? Where do you see this kind of hopelessness, this kind of desperation? So we've seen this dramatic and surprising vulnerability that Tamar experiences. Now let's turn and look at Tamar's surprising courage. Years pass, she's been living at her father's house, and it seems that Shayla is now old enough to be married. But Tamar is still waiting. There's no word from Judah, so her suspicion has been confirmed that Judah actually never had any intention of giving her in marriage to Shayla. When she was sent away, it was not to wait, it was to be forgotten about. But Tamar refuses to be forgotten. And this is where the story takes a wild turn. <laughs> One day, Tamar hears that Judah is passing through a nearby town, so she comes up with a dramatic plan. She has to have children through Judah's line one way or the other. This is her only way to, to survive. And so she disguises herself as a cult prostitute, and she waits on the side of the road for Judah to pass by. And sure enough, when he passes by, he turns to her, he turns her away, and he sleeps with her. But you know, people don't walk around with cash in those days, so Judah promised to pay Tamar when he got back home, send you a goat, he says. But she just wants to make sure, she asks for some collateral, an IOU, so she asks him to leave his seal, his cord, and his staff. These would have been really valuable items that would have undeniably identified him as Judah, this man as Judah, right? And you know, Tamar wasn't so interested in getting her goat. That's not why she asked for the IOU. <laughs> she knew that should she get pregnant, she needed some confirmation of who the father was. So now before we get to the end of the story, let's just sit for a minute on what we've seen. Tamar's entire Hail Mary plan, the plan to save her life, hinges on the fact that she knew Judah would have been tempted by a cult prostitute. What does that tell us about his character? <laughs> it tells us that he was sexually promiscuous, for one, but it also tells us that he had a habit of worshiping Baal. So he was both sexually immoral and an idolater, and yet there is this massive double standard, isn't there? Judah slept with whoever he wanted whenever he wanted. But the second he hears that Tamar is pregnant, Judah immediately calls for her death. Not only does he say she should die, but he says she should be burned at the stake. That is a punishment much more cruel than any that would be prescribed by the law at the time. So his condemnation for her, it's immediate is without consideration, without any hesitation. And he is on the verge of torturing and killing this woman for doing something that he did regularly. And you know, no one around him bats an eye. The society in which they lived had blinded everyone around Judah to his absolutely stunning hypocrisy. 
But Tamar, she knew this would happen, and she planned for it. So she used the double standard of her society against Judah in order to get what was rightfully hers. Just before she walks to the stake, moments before she is about to be killed, she sends Judah a message. She says, hey, you haven't asked yet who the father is. <laughs> well, this seal is proof of his identity. Does it look familiar? <laughs> and just like that, Judah is exposed <laughs> in front of everyone. Here's the thing. Tamar isn't totally innocent. I don't think that the Bible is prescribing sexual entrapment as a recommended course <laughs> of action to procure justice. But I also don't think that's the point of this story. The fact that Tamar had to go to such extremes to get what was rightfully hers is a condemnation of Judah. It's not letting Tamar off the hook, but this passage is undeniably condemning Judah. He was the social, moral, racial insider. He had a responsibility to use that privilege to care for the vulnerable social outsider, but he refused to do so again and again. His society may not have batted an eye at that, but to God, this mattered. So I wonder, does this sort of thing still happen today? Do the values and prejudices of our society stoke our own hypocrisy? Do they blind us to our acts of injustice? Ask yourself, what kind of person, what kind of sinner, does our society condemn without any consideration, without any hesitation? And what about you? Is there a kind of person, a kind of sinner, that when you see them, your heart says, burn them at the stake? And what kind of person, what kind of sin do we think is perfectly excusable, or even forgettable, or even unnoticeable? This story tells us something about what God thinks about the Tamars of the world and what he thinks about the Judas. She's not sinless, but the narrator of this passage recognizes that her goal was justice. And because she was so marginalized, she had to go about getting it in a very surprising way. The remarkable and utterly unexpected thing about this thing is that through her radical vulnerability and her very surprising courage, God is able to bring change and restoration. So finally, let's turn and look at God's surprising redemption in the story. We've come to the end of the story. As a result of Tamar's surprising courage, Judah is publicly caught in his sin. He's exposed before everyone. There's no denying it. But what is surprising and unexpected is that he accepts the blame. He doesn't point the finger somewhere else, which he'd done in the past. He doesn't say, hey, what about her? This is entrapment. <laughs> he doesn't say, it takes two to tango, you know. No, he openly acknowledges his sin before everyone present. 
And he says, this woman is more righteous than I. He's acknowledging his individual role in this situation by fathering the baby, but he's also acknowledging what he had done to put Tamar in the situation that she found herself in, his failure to fulfill his duty to her, to provide for her. In a way, he's acknowledging the sin of his whole society, the one that didn't bat an eye at everything that he was doing. And he takes full responsibility for all of that, knowing that he exacerbated Tamar's fragile vulnerability. If you think about a snowball rolling down a hill, picking up snow, Judah is the one who pushed Tamar down that hill, right? He sent her on that journey where her vulnerability was compounded. But Tamar's actions, they cut through Judah's delusion and blindness. They serve as this spiritual awakening for him. And we know then that Tamar's actions actually do cause true transformation in Judah. The text says that he doesn't sleep with her again. So from then on, Judah protected Tamar because it was his duty, it was his obligation, and out of love, not because he was getting something from her. And the next time we see Judah, later down the road in Genesis, he's back home with his brothers in Israel, so he's no longer living in Canaan. And then, finally, several chapters later, when the family of Israel was suffering from famine, Judah volunteered to give his own life as collateral for the life of his youngest brother, Benjamin. So this, this man who had once refused to care for Tamar because of his selfishness, after being confronted by the radical courage of this very vulnerable woman, now displays this great selflessness for the sake of his people. And that selfless action, his, his offer to put his life up as collateral for the life of his younger brother, changed the course of his family history for generations. And an even more joyful restoration came when Tamar gave birth to these two twin boys. She names one Perez and one Zira. Perez means breakthrough. These sons literally broke through into the world through Tamar, restoring her connection to society that had been severed when she became a widow. And through their new life, she's now entitled to land and inheritance and protection, and she can live. So these sons represent God's breaking in into the mire and injustice through death to bring new life. Even more surprising, Though she wouldn't have known it at the time, I don't think that Tamar would have known this, but her actions contributed to God's own breaking through to bring new life to the whole world. So when Matthew tells the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he traces the bloodline of the Messiah not through Joseph, who's the big hero of the book of Genesis, but through Judah by way of Tamar. She's named in the genealogy of Jesus. God chooses for Jesus to come through the line of Tamar, this outsider. And it's Tamar, not Judah, who's the suffering servant in this story. It's the courageous acts of Tamar, not Judah, that produce the spiritual awakening 
the altering of the course of Judah's life. It's Tamar, not Judah, who became the vehicle for redemption. And at the beginning of the story, we saw Tamar's vulnerability compound on top of itself, snowballing. Like a, but now, at the end of the story, we see the restoration of God compound on top of itself. It's like this ripple effect. It starts with the individual and then goes to his family and then to the society, to the generations, and through Jesus to the whole world. So maybe you identify with Tamar. Maybe you feel like you have been trampled by the injustices of society. Maybe you feel like you've been forgotten by the people who are meant to be caring for you. Or maybe you see a little bit of yourself in Judah. Maybe you feel stuck in the mire of your own hypocrisy. Maybe you feel stuck in selfishness or blinded by your sin. Maybe you're just playing up to your neck with working your job and feeding your kids and paying your bills. Tamar's story reminds us that God still breaks through the mire and the muck and the sin and the injustice of our world to bring new life. Divine mercy, it comes through outsiders of all kinds who are stuck in the messes of this world. And it comes through another radical outsider. Jesus took on the fullness of humanity. He was victimized, traumatized, marginalized, like Tamar. He was stripped, he was shamed, he was condemned to die on a stake like Tamar, and instead of producing proof of his innocence, which of course he had in spades, he selfishly died in the place of those who condemned him. And he still breaks through in the most surprising ways, through outsiders of all kinds, through people even like you, like me, to redeem and to restore and to remake this mess. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, you have come to us across the barriers that we've put up against you, across the barriers that we, that our society has put up, across um, every racial and social and economic barrier, God. You come right into the middle of our life. We pray that we would be encouraged by Tamar to look around and see where you're at work in surprising ways, to expect your surprising redemption. And we thank you, God, that through Jesus Christ, you have come right into the middle of our own story, that you've redeemed us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.